Christ community. If you're new this morning, I am not Paul Phillips. Uh, I'm Mark the Cosmaker, and I am the executive pastor here. Uh, pastor Paul is out this week. As you can see by the slide above, we're just about to start in a new five-week sermon series on Jonah called Overborg and Overwhelmed. Uh, Paul was intending to preach the first four weeks, and then I would preach my sermon at the end, uh, but I think he's trying to find his remote control. And, <laughs> and so I'm not sure what it says about my sermon, but my sermon works just as well as at the front <laughs> as at the beginning. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about uh, two passages in the Gospels. One's in Matthew. It's uh, Matthew 12, 38 to 41. And it can be found on page 817 of the Pew Bible. And the second passage is the companion passage, which is also entitled The Sign of Jonah. And it is Luke 11, 29 to 32, and it can be found on page 875. So I'll give you a moment to find those in your Bible. Okay, Matthew 12, 38 to 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now turning to the passage in Luke, Luke eleven twenty nine to 32. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the sign of man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Please take a moment to consider God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together today on this day that you've made. I thank you for overseeing me as I prepared the sermon this, this week. I would ask that you would superintend that the words that I speak would be, would be what is desired for you for each listener, that it would encourage them, that it would strengthen them, that it would reprove them, that it would do the work that you intend for it to do. And we ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Now, 
In his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, Stephen Covey tells a story that happened to him when he was on riding on a subway. He says, a man gets onto the subway and he has three children. And immediately, the children just start running amok. They're running back and forth, making noise, disturbing everybody. And he gives it a minute. He figures, okay, they'll, they'll just settle down. But, but that's not what happens. It just keeps getting worse. And he's looking at the different passengers, and he can see the frustration and the anger level rising. Because you know how you feel when children are out of control and their parents don't care enough to do anything about it? So Stephen finally says, okay, I'm, I'm going to take control of the situation. I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm a public speaker. I do leadership. So he goes up and goes up to the man. He says, uh, excuse me, sir, but uh, your children are really disturbing a lot of the people in the car. And I was wondering if you could maybe control them a little bit better. And the guy just kind of looks in his lap and he says, yeah, yeah, I know. He said, uh, we just came from the hospital and their mother died. And they don't know how to act. And frankly, neither do I. You see, in that moment, in that split second, everything changes. Stephen doesn't see this man as a bad parent. He doesn't see a lot of undisciplined children. He sees people in pain who need sympathy, love, and care. And as he looked at the other people sitting close enough to hear the man, he could see the change in their heart just by looking at them. Now, Stephen calls this a paradigm shift. What it is is when the truth comes into a moment and it changes everything about what you understand. It changes not only how you see the actions that occurred, but how you see what your appropriate response is to what you see. And in today's passage, that's what we're going to see. How Jesus breathes truth into a moment and how that truth changes everything. Now, today's passage occurs in the middle of a long series of signs and wonders. Jesus is doing different things. The crowds are following him and they're starting to believe there are people calling him the Messiah. But it says that the scribes and the Pharisees are beginning to press him. They're trying to press him hard and to provoke him into speaking things that they can use against him. So when we read in the passage, it says that some of the scribes and Pharisees say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. What they're really saying is, we don't believe you are who you say you are. And unless you give us more signs and more wonders and more proof, we're not going to believe. In fact, what they're really saying is we're not going to believe no matter what you do. And Jesus knows that. He sees their heart. But the thing is, like we see in other points in Scripture, when they come for Jesus, when they try to trick him, Jesus turns the table. And that's what we're going to see in this passage because what he tells them is, you think you sit in judgment over me, but in point of fact, you're the people who are on trial. God is going to judge you in your unbelief. So today's sermon is going to be talking about the truth and the trial that Jesus is telling them that they need to prepare for. And it's going to be in three sections. It's going to be the charge, 
It's going to be the two witnesses he says God is going to hear with regard to their unbelief. And it's going to be the two responses that they make to that. Now, the charge is pretty simple, but it's not necessarily easy to see right at the beginning. Because what he says is an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, we hear the term evil and adulterous generation in the context of the New Testament, and we really think what he's saying is, this is an unbelieving group of people. But remember who Paul has said the scribes and the Pharisees are. They're the elite. They're the special forces of religious knowledge. All right? So they know everything there is to know about the word of God. And when they hear the term evil and adulterous generation within the context of the judgment of God on the people of Israel, they're thinking of another time when God used some, a term that was very similar to that. They're thinking about when God brought them through the wilderness to the promised land. And God said to the people, fear not. Go up into the land that I have prepared for you. He tells them, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be amongst you. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to fight for you just as I did in Egypt. So they send 12 people, one person from every tribe to go into Canaan. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, come back and say, oh, it is a land filled with milk and honey. Let's go up into the land that God has prepared for us. And 10 of them say, hey, yo, they're giants, and we're grasshoppers. There is no way we want any part of that. And so the nation of Israel trusts these 10 leaders who decide not to trust God. And so God brings a judgment on them for their unbelief. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy. It says, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs. Remember, God gave them signs and wonders all through the wilderness. He gave them signs and wonders in Egypt. He said, none of the people who have seen my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test, haven't trusted me, shall see the land that I swore to their fathers and that all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me will wander in the wilderness until they die. So they're going to be condemned to death. But beyond that, he says, and their children will bear the price of their infidelity, their adultery, for 40 years in the wilderness. You see, they hear this term, and they think of God's judgment on unbelief against the entire nation of Israel. And Jesus is telling them, God is saying, he's going to fight for you again. I am here to defeat sin and death. I am amongst you. I have done signs and wonders. So he's prepared them to hear what that judgment is going to look like. So let's consider the two witnesses he says God is going to hear at the final judgment against them. The first one is the Ninevites. Now, God had sent the prophet Jonah to preach to the Ninevites and call, it, call them out against their sin, to hold their sin before them. Now, Jonah hates the Ninevites. He hates them with a passion so deep that the prophet of God, hearing that God wants to have mercy on the Ninevites, says he might save them. 
So he goes the exact opposite direction. He goes as far as he can to get away from Nineveh. And when he runs out of land, he gets on a boat and goes out to sea to continue to go away from Nineveh. And then God sends a great storm. And I'm not going to go into the whole story, but rather than relent even at that, he tells them, look, I am the reason that God is going to destroy you in the storm, so throw me overboard. Throw me overboard, and God will relent, and you'll be saved. So literally, he says, I would rather die than preach the word of God to the Ninevites. But God pursues us in our disobedience. God sends a fish who swallows Jonah. And after three days and three nights, he repents. And God spits him out from the fish on the shores that are close to Nineveh. He ends up exactly where God wanted him, even in his disobedience. We serve a great and gracious God who moves us forward even in our disobedience. So God tells Jonah exactly what to say. He says, preach these words into the city of Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Seven words in the Aramaic, nine words in English. I know you probably wish I had such brevity and clarity. (laughs) So Jonah goes into the city and he preaches this sermon over and over. And the words come to the king and it says, the king of Nineveh takes off his royal robes and he dons sacked cloth and ashes. In other words, his sin is brought before him and he recognizes it and he repents. And he calls to all the people of Nineveh to do the same thing. And beyond that, he says, and we're not going to eat or drink, neither us nor any beast. We're going to do a fast as we repent. And the thing about it is, they do that, and then it says, this is the reason we're going to do that. Because who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You see, the Ninevites heard their sin and they recognized what that sin was against the Holy God and and they didn't try to minimize it. They didn't try to negotiate it. They didn't try to deny it. And they recognized that there was nothing that they could do that would require God to forgive them. They said, we're going to repent and we're just going to throw ourselves on the mercy of God, and maybe he will relent. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that we're a sinner in need of a savior. And if we will trust in God, that he will save us. So because they heard of God, the word of God from Jonah, they trusted Jonah. And 120,000 people are saved. And many cattle. I love that. And many cattle. (laughs) So they heard the truth of the word of God from a child of God. And they believed. Because the truth changes everything. The second witness witness that he says is going to stand before them is the Queen of Sheba. Also called the Queen of the South. And that story comes from 1 Kings. 
And it says, when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. So she heard the fame of Solomon, not because he was rich, not because he was powerful, but she heard it concerning the name of the Lord. Now, Sheba is in the land we would now today call Yemen, about 1,400 miles from Jerusalem, which is not like a three-hour American Airlines flight. It's about three or four months on the back of a camel. So you have to have real serious questions that you need answered to make that trip. So let's think in terms of Yemen was a very, or, or Sheba was a very wealthy country at, at that time. So we can assume that the queen of Sheba was wealthy. She had power. She had authority. She had everything that a person could want at that time. But yet it wasn't enough. She knew there had to be more, so she travels all the way to Jerusalem to hear the words of Solomon. And it says that she asked questions until she had no more breath in her. Now, that's a lot of questions. And sometimes you read that, and I feel jealous. I say, man, I would like to sit down and have every question I have about God answered. And we don't know what the questions were that she asked, but we do know what her response was. When Solomon had been done speaking to her, she says this. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the reports that I heard. Happier your men, happier your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be your Lord God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you might execute justice and righteousness. So her response to the truth, the wisdom that Solomon had given her was, number one, that all the blessings that they received that's not what made the nation happy. They weren't blessed in what they received. They were blessed in the person who gave them those blessings, in the giver. She heard that it was God who determined rulers. So she was a ruler because God had chosen. And she said that God says that he places people in places of leadership so that they can execute justice and righteousness. So the idea is all things under heaven happen according to God's plan. Now, when she heard this, you, you, you say, okay, so what is it that he would say that would make her believe that? And, and I think one of the great things, if you were here about two weeks ago, Paul preached a sermon where he talked about a song of David from 1 Chronicles. Now, remember, David is Solomon's father. And as a father teaches his son, he would have taught him the things of the Lord. And so let me read the passage from 1 Chronicles that Paul had read us. And it says, Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honors come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. That literally sounds what, like what she said 
when she said, this is what I learned. Which one tells me that the wisdom of Solomon is found in the word of God. That's what he shared with us. And what was her reaction to that wisdom? In 1 Kings, it says that she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as those that the queen of Sheba gave to the king of Solomon. To her, the wisdom of God was priceless. She traveled halfway across the known world, and then she trusted Solomon. And it changed everything for her. So when we went back to the time when Jesus is addressed in this audience and he tells them, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against you and, and you, trust, you would trust in Jonah and something is greater than, uh, than Jonah is here, that the queen of the south is going to rise up in judgment, uh, judgment uh, testimony against you and she trusted in Solomon and something greater than Solomon is here. He's making a very interesting point because, you know, he's not relying on the testimony of the two witnesses. Because, you see, these scribes and Pharisees who are sitting in judgment of Jesus would have said, we're not concerned with what the Ninevites have to say because, you know what? They're Gentiles. And God's not going to take their word over ours. And when it comes to the Queen of Sheba, they're going to say, Shh. the Queen of Sheba is a she. And God's not going to take her word over ours because she doesn't have standing. But see, as Christ has told us, because of the power of the resurrection, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no male or female. We all stand equal before the Lord. But Christ meets them where they are, and he says, but you would have trusted the word of Jonah, a prophet of God. You would have trusted the wisdom of Solomon, a king of Israel. And I'm telling you something greater than that is right here. And you refuse to believe. So what happens then? Because we know there's only two ways to respond to the word of God. There's belief and there's rejection. Well, Jesus tells us that he's going to, they're going to be judged for their disobedience. But he also says that an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will be the Son of Man three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Even though he's saying, I'm not going to give you any other signs, I'm going to give you the most important sign. The sign on which all salvational history hangs. Because everything before the cross points to the cross, and everything since the cross points back to the cross. He's going to give them his death and resurrection. That's his proof that he's a prophet of God and he is the Messiah. And so we look at that and we say, so what is their response to that? Well, we know from Matthew that they believed that he believed that when he said it. So they go, it says the chief priests and the elders, the scribes and the Pharisees, 
go to Pontius Pilate, and they said, after the, res- after the crucifixion, they said, this guy, he said in three days he's going to rise again. And so what we need you to do is to seal up his tomb and put guards in front of it. Because what we think is his disciples are going to come and seal the body and pretend that that's what's happened. So Pontius Pilate says yes. And as we know, on Easter morning, the angels come, they roll away the stone, and Christ rises. And Mary comes, and the angel says to her, the man that you seek is not here, he's arisen. And they instruct you to go and tell the others. But the guards are also there, and it says they're almost like dead men. But they've witnessed what's happened. And do they go to the Roman rulers? No. They go to the chief priests. And they say, hey, it happened. And what does the chief priest do? The chief priests bribe them. They say, look, we're going to give you money. We're going to smooth everything over with the Roman authorities. What you need to say is the disciples came and stole the body. See, they have seen the sign and wonder. They have seen the death and the resurrection. And now not only do they not believe, they're going to lead others into disbelief. You see, knowing that a sign is true doesn't mean anything. Believing in a sign means nothing. Believing in the person who the sign points to is what means everything. And so the judgment that Christ has said is going to come upon them is now true. And if we say that they're going to spend all eternity burning in hell, then that's what they deserve. But you know what? That's not the end of the story. Because we serve a gracious and loving God. And in the words of Jonah, it says God is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It was God's forgiveness that led Jonah into disobedience. So we hear the rest of the story on Pentecost when God sends Peter to speak to the crowd. And many of these same people were going to be in that crowd. And Peter said these words, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He is reminding them of the sign of Jonah. And some of them hear the truth of the law of God and they're convicted by it. And they call out to Peter and say, brother, what should we do? And he said, save yourself from this evil generation. 
And they believed, and about 3,000 were brought into the kingdom. We serve a God who is mighty to save. Now, as I would move to the closing, I want you to remember these three th incidents in, in the sermon today. In Nineveh, we saw that God sent a man with his truth into a dark city. He preached the words that God had given him, and they were saved. In the Queen of Sheba, a woman who had everything she could possibly desire, everything that this earth could give him, realized it wasn't enough. She was like a seeker. And God prepared a man to give the truth of God's word to her, and she was saved. And then Peter, on Pentecost, looked out on the crowd, and he didn't just see the people who had crucified his Lord and Savior. He saw sheep in need of a shepherd. God is coming towards a lost generation. And his church is the mechanism by which he accomplishes that. We live amongst a lost generation. A people that walk in darkness. They're angry. They're confused. They're afraid. They hear the words of this world that whisper lies. They hear Satan telling them one lie after another, giving them one false hope after another. And they need someone to pierce that darkness with the light of truth. The church has to be that light. We are the sign that God has sent to this world. This is our commission, to share the truth of Jesus Christ to a lost generation. Because how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear if no one preaches? The sign is the word of God. It is the power to transform. Christ is the very word of God, and he's calling on you and me and all of us to bear that light and speak that truth. Now, everyone is going to believe someone's word. Let it be the word of God brought by you. Because the gospel is the truth that changes everything. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you loved us with such a great love that while we were yet your enemies, you sent your son to die on a cross to redeem us. We thank you for the opportunity to be your hands and feet in this dark world. And though we would desire nothing more than your kingdom would come and that your glory would be manifest today and we would be joined with you, we know that it is a blessing that you give to a lost world every day that you delay because it gives us an opportunity to gather more of your sheep to you. We ask that you would help us use this time 
to heal this world by speaking your truth into it. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.